But it is great to see you guys. We're going to be in Acts chapter 22 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 22. Acts 22, beginning in verse 1. Luke records as Paul speaks, beginning in verse 1. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priests and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that as as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, but to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up. And go into Damascus, and there you'll be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for Paul's story this morning. I thank you for getting a sense just of what you've done in his life, Father. And I pray as we open your word, as we jump into the story, Lord, I pray that you would even pull back for us the layers of the story and help us to see even the way that you are working in our own lives. Father, I pray that you'd help us to see uh, in Paul's story even some components of what it looks like and how you move in each of our lives. And Father, I pray this morning as we begin back to a, a second half of the semester, as we circle back and we begin to look toward the rest of the spring and toward the summer and many of us for graduation that's coming, Lord, I pray that you would help us to get a better sense of our story, what it is and how it is you've been working in our lives and how you've been preparing us for something to come in the future, no matter what that may be and no matter what it looks like. Father, I pray that you would guide us, that you would land us in a place this morning way beyond anything that I've planned, uh, and that you would land us and move us to the very things that you would have us to see, and the things that you would have us to do, and the ways that you would have us to respond. Father, I pray that you would be honored in this time, and that you'd show up, and that you'd move uh, beyond any of our expectations, Lord. Might you allow us just to simply listen, and to sit before you, and for you to move in us as you would see fit, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning, through your Son, and by your Spirit, Amen. Well, I'll tell you guys about this time of year, there's a few things that are as fun for me as beginning to get a sneak peek behind the scenes at some guys who are getting ready to propose, all right? So I'm not going to name names, all right? I don't want to out anyone, all right, uh, this morning, all right? Uh, but I love getting a sneak peek at these guys because they begin to absolutely live a double life, right? They begin to lie to their girlfriend, all right, because they're trying to meet her dad. They're trying to have this conversation. They begin to plan out a proposal, but it wants to be a surprise. So he kind of ends up living this double life for a little while, all right? Uh, and they begin to try to plan something astronomical, something crazy, something to express to the girl they want to spend their life with by just how seriously and how deeply they feel towards them, all right? Every now and then you get the guy who will, can't really come up with anything, he kind of goes down to his knee, ties his shoelaces, pops up and proposes, right? There's that kind of guy sometimes, right? To his disappointed and now really disillusioned fiance, right? Uh, but more, by and large, most guys go all out for this thing, all right? I knew a guy a couple years ago who actually flew to China and proposed to his girlfriend on the Great Wall, unbeknownst to her that he would be there, all right? 
awesome. All right. I knew a guy who actually flew to Florence, Italy and surprised his girl in a plaza unbeknownst to her that he would be there. I told you guys a story last semester in the fall about a Russian businessman who hired a screenwriter, uh, makeup artist, uh, director to stage his death so he could communicate to his girl how deeply he cared for her before he resurrected and expressed to her that he loved her and that, that her life would have been empty apart from him. All right, all right. You guys have heard those stories. I'll tell you guys our engagement story, all right? Because I kind of also fall under the line of this, that any good engagement needs a good a little bit of emotional manipulation, all right? So uh, I liked it from the Russian guy, and I kind of did the same kind of thing with Marcy when we were seniors in college, all right, I decided we were kind of getting that stage where proposal was getting to be imminent, but I wanted to surprise her. I wanted to kind of have her on her heels, not knowing what was coming. And so I took her on a big date. We all got dressed up, all right, went out for a fancy night, and I led through a date that I wanted her to think that at any moment, in several moments in the night, I was on the verge of proposal, all right? So uh, we went all the way out to Kima. We went on a trip, all right? And every time that she was thinking it, I'd kind of just keep moving on and not propose, all right? In fact, I would move us and drive us all the way back to College Station, drop her off at her uh, home, and my heartbeat and my hope was that I would have raised her hopes of engagement so high to only have them crash to the, uh, to the bottom by the end of the night. All right. <laughs> Ten minutes later, my, one of my best friends calls her and says, hey, Marcy, I need you to get ready. I need you to get ready. I'm going to take you somewhere and drop you off somewhere. And she's like, it's late. I've been on a long trip. It's been a great night. You know, she's come down a little bit, you know. She's like, I'm really, I know, no. You know, and, and my buddy's like, no, you, you need to get dressed, all right? She's like, I'm kind of tired. It's been a long day, you know. No, I'm all right. And so finally, he actually finally forces her. He's like, no, 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 get ready, all right? Brings her Dr. Pepper to make sure she's got some energy, all right? And then takes her to the gazebo that we had our first Valentine's date ever, all right? The gazebo was lit up in lights, like something from Christmas Vacation, all right? Power outages going out in the city, all right? And there I was. I had a table set up, and I had basically a rose and a note for each month that we had been dating. And my plan was to basically kind of walk her through our dating relationship by the time I get to the 12th rose, which would really be kind of the rest of our life, right? Well, about month six, remember this is a cold December night, okay? I'm wearing a wool jacket, and about month six, she throws her hands into my pockets of my jacket where I have a ring box, all right? All right? (laughs) So note to guys, if you're going to propose, make sure the ring is not so accessible, all right? So she throws her hands into my ring box, and my, and my jacket fills the ring box, and she, and from that point kind of forward and the rest of the night is kind of all a blur. She really doesn't remember what I'm saying, all right? In fact, and she doesn't remember this until I've told her this, but she would actually begin to say, yeah, 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 like as if to hurry me up to the proposal, all right? <laughs> I really don't care about Monk 6 to 11. We got a lifetime coming. Let's get to that, right? All right? And so finally, I proposed to her, and it's great, and we've been living happily ever after, right? But I kind of fell in the idea of a great proposal has a little bit of emotional manipulation, right? I kind of fell into the idea that a proposal, you go all out to express how greatly you feel about the person, okay? Now, why do we guys go all out like that? Is it to express to the girl how greatly we feel about them? Yes. Is there something else going on? You darn right there is, all right? Here's the thing that we guys realize. That story and whatever it is that we have done is going to be told hundreds of times, right, to hundreds of people. So it better be good story worthy because if it's boring and if it's complacent and if it's just run of the mill, it doesn't make for a good story. And then all of a sudden you don't get that ah moment when it's told. You don't get the flood of tears from the girls that really validates that was a good proposal, right? Now proposals really, here's the deal for me, proposals really are the quintessential example of what makes for a good story, right? There's something about story, which is why we like chick flicks, you ladies do, even though we know where it's heading, all right? We love a good story, right? Because it has the opportunity to demonstrate and produce in us all kinds of the height of emotions, right? A good story can communicate not just pure exhilaration, but also despair, right? A great story can communicate great hope, great joy, 
or also great dread, right? Stories can move us and inspire us and move us to an assortment of all kinds of emotions. There's something about story, what it communicates, how it communicates, and what it does in our lives. Story is really, really powerful. And I'll tell you guys, for a culture now in throes of postmodernism that loves experience, that loves story, that loves relationships, there's something even more influential about story today. Especially in a postmodern culture where people will validate your experience because it's yours. Therefore, your story, however personal and however individualistic it is, cannot and does not offend people. And one of the things I want to challenge you guys, one of the things I want to submit to you this morning as we jump into Acts 22 and we hear Paul's story, his own testimony, his own accounting of what God has done in his life, is that story, especially today, for a, a culture that is really embanked and, and really in the throes of postmodernism, is one of the most effective tools you have to share your faith in Jesus Christ. Your story is one of the most effective tools you have to communicate what Jesus Christ has done, who he is, and the impact that he's had in your life. No one's offended by story because it's your story and experience is valid and experience provides you an opportunity to have it. One of the things I want you guys to get a sense of this morning is that your story however ordinary and extraordinary it may be, is one of the most effective tools you have in communicating your faith, your hope, and the grace of God and the relationship you have with Jesus Christ. In fact, I think for many of us, though, we don't feel that way. We want a great, grandiose engagement story, but when it comes to our own story of our own relationship with Jesus Christ, if we have one, for many of us, we're kind of ashamed. We're not really that proud of it whatsoever. I remember even my senior year, I was applying here at Grace for a, to go on a summer mission trip like some of you guys are this summer. I had to go through an interview, and at that time, Blake Jennings, who is now our teaching pastor, was then just a, a little intern, uh, uh, trying to figure his way out in life, all right? And he asked me, he goes, hey, Trey, why don't you explain to me your testimony, all right? I said, well, all right, well, this is kind of a story of what Jesus has done in my life, but I'll be honest, there's no drugs in it, there's no sex in it, and I kind of had this sheepish, like, ah, oh, it's not really that good of a story moment, all right? And Blake validated it, all right? <laughs> Blake goes, minus five, no drugs, Minus five, no sex, all right? Of course he was joking, though, all right? Of course he was joking that this idea that maybe my story, if it doesn't have this dramatic reversal of fortunes or this dramatic escape from demons and drugs, that it doesn't make that great of a story. But I think all of us have that little sense, right? All of us have that sense that, well, maybe my story and my relationship with Jesus Christ, maybe it's not that dramatic. Maybe it's not that influential. Maybe it's not that impacting, one of the things I want to say as we jump into Paul's story in, in Acts 22 is that we're all going to realize that Paul's story is unique. None of us have had the same kind of story that Paul has had, and yet each of us has had our own unique story of our walk with Jesus Christ and our relationship with Jesus Christ. And in its uniqueness, it is impactful and effective to reach a certain kind of group of people that Paul's story may not have reached. One of the things I want you guys to hear as we start out and we think about testimony and stories that it is incredibly impacting. And your, your, your story, as unique as it is, maybe as ordinary as you think it is, is incredibly impacting to communicate the gospel and what God has done in your life. Because ultimately your story is not just your story, but it's the story of God and what God is doing and how God has worked in your life and in others. All right, That's where we're going to head this morning, Acts 22, as we kind of jump into the story. We're going to see Paul's story. And really as it kind of begins, I think Paul gives us a great sense in verses 1 and 2 of really what a testimony or a story is. Verse 1, Paul says, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. He says, hear my defense. What is a defense? Actually, that Greek word is the, uh, comes from is the word apologia, which we get our English word apology, all right? 
Also, sometimes with, with, with which we talk about apologetics, all right? And so Paul, as he explains and provides his story, he is making an apology, all right? In many cases, what many of us think when we think of apologies, we're thinking of someone who's caught in an embarrassing situation who's having to explain themselves, right? It often begins with, I'm so sorry, right? And honestly, I think for many of us, as we think about sharing our story of Jesus Christ or sharing of our faith in Jesus Christ, I think a lot of us actually sometimes feel like we're going to begin in that spot as we're talking to a classmate or a coworker. I'm sorry, I know this is kind of crazy, <laughs> but I, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Right? Some of us think, as we think about sharing our faith, some of us think that we're starting in a place of uh, embarrassment. It reminds me of a good friend of mine, one of my good college roommates, who in high school took a girl out on a first date in Houston to a really fancy restaurant, all right? And when the bill came, they had a great night, and when the bill came, he reaches into his pocket, and would you believe, no wallet, all right? First date, all right, no wallet, expensive restaurant, all right, what are his options? Nothing, right? So, so he has the girl pay, all right? And so after the girl is paid, after he's lost complete face in this moment, he gets up and would you believe his wallet is simply underneath his chair, all right? And so now he's got to pick up his wallet, which is right underneath the chair, minutes after she's paid, right? And now he has to apologize and provide some kind of explanation for the situation that he's in, all right? He didn't get a second date, all right? And he's about to get, he's moving toward marriage, which is awesome, all right? So here's the deal, okay? Here's the deal. I think for many of us, as we think about sharing our faith, as we think about sharing our testimony, I think many of us think about my friend who had his first date in high school, thinking we're caught in this embarrassing situation of a relationship with Jesus Christ. People are going to think we're crazy. And we kind of start off with this apologetic, let me kind of disclaim it. This is kind of crazy, I know. But I know and I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, right? I think for so many of us, that's kind of our assumption. That's kind of our framework for how we jump into conversations. And I want you guys to realize, while we kind of get there from the English word apology, that is not at all what Paul was doing in Acts 22. And that's not at all what we've been called to. That's not at all what we mean when we talk about apologetics. It's not leading off with, I'm sorry, <laughs> this is crazy, but, all right? That's, that's not how this is ever intended. Ultimately, what Paul is doing here in Acts 22 is he speaks of the defenses that he's providing in a reasoned explanation. He's providing a reasoned explanation for his own relationship with Jesus Christ and what God has done in his life. It's not an apology. It's not a, I am so sorry, but it is a reasonable explanation for why he believes what he believes. All right. That's what a testimony or story is. It is our reasoned explanation for the faith and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And for that reason, the great apologists of the other church were not uh, weak men who were apologizing to the culture. The great apologists of the early church were those that knew their Bible and knew their culture exceedingly well. They could have one foot in the culture and they could have one foot in the Bible and they could build a bridge to explain their faith to the culture, speaking as a cultural insider. They weren't just these crazy people who were just living in a little hermit world known as the church. They knew the word of God and they knew the world at large and they knew how to communicate concepts of the scriptures into and to a culture that had rejected it and was hostile to it. The great apologists of the early church were those who knew their Bible and they knew the culture exceedingly well. In fact, if you guys had an opportunity to go to Veritas this last Thursday night, you saw a great modern-day apologist, a guy named William Lane Craig, who goes around speaking in academic universities, providing a reasoned explanation for the faith and hope that he has in Jesus Christ. And in academic university settings, he's able to speak with regard to science and regard to philosophy in ways last Thursday night that left me utterly confused and I had no idea what he's talking about at times, all right? But here's a great benchmark, here's a great wonder of what he's able to do and communicate. 
is that he's able to step into cultural arenas known as science and philosophy within the academic setting and communicate the faith that he has, playing by their rules, living within their theorems, and communicating the faith that they have in the midst of it and its connection to science and philosophy. William Lane Craig is a great apologist for the modern era. And really, here at Texas A&M and here in the university setting, you and I, by and large, are caught up 20 years behind where the world has really gone, all right? You and I don't live in a modern era anymore. William Lane Craig is incredible at speaking into that era that really has passed us on the street but is still present in the university setting in which, is, in which we exalt reason, in which we exalt science, in which we exalt rationale, the mind, and ultimately even philosophy. But on the street, another contemporary great apologist today is a guy named Tim Keller. Some of you guys maybe have read Reason for God. I think one of the best books I've written in the last few years. I love Keller because as a pastor, he speaks more at a, uh, a lay person's level, more at a person who's just living on the street, right? Um, and he's able to speak, I, therefore, I think, to the issues, uh, culturally speaking, that are much more relevant today to most people, all right? Speaking towards those of a postmodern era, he will speak to that culture, and he can speak to that culture as a way of one who knows not just the biblical, text, but his culture at large, and he speaks so winsomely, all right? If you guys have had the opportunity to read that book, he's got, his pul- he's got the pulse of culture very much under his finger. He knows what, what the culture's thinking, and he knows how to engage the culture. The greatest apologists were not those that said, hey, I'm sorry for this crazy faith that I have in a person named Jesus Christ, but they can provide a reasoned explanation, speaking to the culture at large in very culturally appropriate ways, all right? They didn't bend truth they didn't sacrifice and compromise truth, but they could engage the culture in a way that would make the culture listen and have a conversation. Notice what happens in verse 2. Notice what Paul does. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. Paul stands up to defend his faith, and he's going to speak to them in the Hebrew dialect. And because of that, because he engages them in a very culturally appropriate way, they stop and they listen. They were ready to throw rocks at him, but because he engages them in a very culturally appropriate way, Everything stops, and they actually begin to have a conversation, and he's able to have an opportunity to share his own story. So one of the things I want to ask you guys this morning really is, what is the Hebrew dialect of our day? What are the culturally appropriate ways that we can engage our culture, whether it's in the university setting like we saw at Veritas on the last Thursday night, if you were there, whether it's like Tim Keller does in his book, Reason for God, speaking just to those within a campus within, who are our coworkers, our classmates, and our families who just are living within the culture at large, how do we engage them well? I think the way that we do that is through the vehicle of story. Story really, I think, is the most powerful and the most effective means that you and I can engage and speak to our culture in terms of the faith and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, D.A. Carson will say this, speaking of uh, story. He says, really, of postmodern culture that so values authenticity, so values experience, so values relationships, that community really is the context for discussion of the gospel. And then he goes on further and he says, if the community is the context for the gospel, the mode of transmission is story. Here is how you and I today are to share our faith. Here's the most effective way that we can go about packaging and explaining the faith that we have. It's by story. Story is the starting point for narrative evangelism. And this is where we begin with people. This is where we begin to speak of the faith and the hope that we have. And if we're going to work within a postmodern culture, then we need to be people who will listen. Who will listen. And then we need to help them place their story in the larger context of God's story. I love what Carson says here. Thinking of the culture at large, knowing the culture at large, how do you and I engage the culture at large in terms of the faith and the hope of of the gospel that we possess, that we believe? 
Uh, Carson's going to hit us, and I'm going to try to push us as we look at Acts 22. That story is the bedrock moment. It's the bedrock means. It's the vehicle by which we have that is the most effective for a conversation. And yet notice what Carson will say, though, first, is where do you and I start by listening? (laughs) The greatest apologists knew their culture because they listened, and they listened well, and therefore they knew how to engage the greatest opportunity we have in the midst of uh, classes and uh, job settings and apartment settings is that we could be those that could listen. I want to ask you, as you think about your coworkers, as you think about your classmates, as you think about your family, I want to ask you, how well do you listen? How good of a listener are you? How well do you know people's stories? Because the degree to which you know their story is the degree to which you can begin to help shape and put their story within the larger story of God's story, Right? As you know their story, as you care for them, they, they realize that you care for them, that you love them, that you know them. And then as you begin to speak forth your story to make connections with their story, you have an opportunity to begin to put it in the larger story of God. Because ultimately what we're doing with story, and ultimately even our own personal stories, is but a launching spot to begin to speak of the larger story that exists, which is God's story. It is the meta-narrative. There's a story from Genesis Revelation of what God is and who God is and how he's working and ultimately then what he's doing even in our lives. Story is the, the beginning moment for us to have a conversation, the beginning moment to connect with people, and then to begin to move them and help them begin to realize that their story fits into a larger story by and large. In fact, we're going to kind of get a sense as we begin to think about our story, then how do we share our story? What are some basic components of a good testimony or a good story? I want you guys to notice from Paul's story, you're going to get basically three basic phases of a story or components of a story. It begins in verse 3 with basically kind of speaking of his past or his life before he knew Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of your fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. Notice that really as Paul begins to unpack his story, he's going to unpack that he has a certain background. He unpacks where he's from, he unpacks his culture, he unpacks his family, he unpacks his upbringing, his training, that has all shaped who he is, it's shaped how he sees the world, and it's shaped how he moves into the world. And as he looks at that background, he's going to recognize that it comes also with a certain kind of baggage. Notice what he says in verse 4. Notice the, way, notice the impact that this, this background had on him. Therefore, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. He says, hey, I persecuted the early church and the early Christians. And persecuting those that were in Jerusalem wasn't enough for me. I was that zealous that I went outside of Jerusalem to get those in Damascus to bring them back so that they could be persecuted in prison as well. Paul says, hey, here is my background. Here is the baggage that it led to. Here is the product that I was. And here is ultimately what God will step into and step into my life and move in a way that he could never have imagined. When God shows up on the scene, Paul never saw it coming. And for you and I, who may know Jesus Christ, if you have that relationship with Jesus Christ, many oftentimes we never saw God coming. We never saw Jesus coming. Notice how Paul will say it uh, of an encounter that he's going to have with Jesus Christ in verse 6. He says this, But it happened that I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, and a very bright light suddenly flashed from around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice that Paul is going to have an encounter with Jesus Christ, and ultimately it's going to be an encounter with Jesus Christ that was unmistakable, right? A bright light hits him, he falls to the ground, a voice speaks from heaven. He's going to have an experience, an encounter with Jesus Christ that goes back to a fuller description we got in Acts chapter 9 that was unmistakable. 
It was unmistakable what had just happened, that he was just on his way to Damascus, minding his own business, doing his own thing. And all of a sudden, God showed up when he least expected it and knocked him off a horse, knocked him to the ground, and blinded him. (laughs) The experience and the moment, the encounter that Paul had with Jesus Christ was absolutely unmistakable. And it wasn't just unmistakable with elements of nature, but it was also incredibly personal. Notice he says in verse uh, 7 again, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. Really, what you get here as Paul is harking and telling his his story really is a, a condensed version of what he uh, what we saw in Acts chapter nine, and we looked at it back in the fall of Paul's conversion moment. Paul is collapsing that story here, and really, what I love of that story is that it's not just an encounter, but it's more of a collision, right? just knocks him to the ground. And when you and I have had an opportunity to meet with Jesus Christ, we are absolutely floored and we're changed people. You, you cannot have met Jesus Christ and not know it. It is that flooring, it is that unmistakable of an experience. And it's incredibly personal. Really, ultimately what Christianity about is about is not a religion, it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's about a relationship with a person. It's about knowing the God of the universe who has come in human flesh to die on your behalf so that you can know him and walk with him. It is an exceedingly personal thing to know and to walk with Jesus Christ. That's what this thing is all about. And it began at that moment on a road to Damascus for Paul. And he was as unmistakable, as incredibly personal, but it was also incredibly unique. Paul's story is not like our story, right? This, none of us have had this same experience at all uh, with Jesus Christ. Uh, many uh, Muslims have had some dreams and visions in which Jesus has come to them in their night. It looks nothing like this, right? Some of you guys maybe met Jesus Christ in college. Some of you guys maybe met Jesus Christ as you were a young child in a Christian home. All of our stories are incredibly different and incredibly unique. In fact, notice even in this own story, not everyone responds the same way. Notice verse 9. And those who were with me saw the light. They had the same experiential visual experience. They saw the light. And, and to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who is speaking to me. So those that were with Paul who are accompanying him, they saw the light, they heard something. We're not exactly sure what they heard, but they definitely did not respond in the same way that Paul would respond. Paul's experience here was incredibly unique, as postmodernism will say to you and I, that our experience is unique. Absolutely dang right. And so in the midst of our unique experience, our story is being woven and being told that ultimately, since it's about an encounter with Jesus Christ, is not just about us. Because our story involves an encounter with Jesus Christ, it begins to move from the subjective to the objective. Because our story is about an encounter with Jesus Christ, it begins to move from the individualistic to the universal. Because it's about Jesus Christ, it's not just about a person, you and me, but it's about a transcendent reality that is God. And all of a sudden, our story, as it begins to be told, and as Paul begins to tell his story, is therefore not just about his own story, but it's a part of a larger story that exists, which is the story of God, of who God is and how God is working. And all of a sudden, Paul's story becomes an awesome opportunity for him to begin to share exactly who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That Jesus loved him, cared for him, would meet him on a road to turn him around. And the results of it in Paul's life would be catastrophic and would be absolutely soul-shaking, changing. Because notice, it's not just about an encounter with Jesus Christ, that Paul's story will even eventually include effects that would go even into the future. For any of you guys who love those classic contrasting before and after pictures, I noticed back in the Super Bowl, even Jared from Subway will be celebrating 15 years, right, of great change, right? And now you have celebrities and you have athletes who are all applauding Jared. Way to go, way to go. You lost the weight, you kept it off. That's amazing, right? 
And as elaborate and as contrastive as that is, Paul's going to provide a before and after that really takes the cake for any kind of great contrast. Notice what happens to Paul's life. He's going to go from persecuting the church to proliferating a message. Notice what happens in verse 10. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing near to, and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at the very time I looked up at him. Uh, the moment that Paul has an encounter with Jesus Christ, all of a sudden everything changes in terms of what he sees. All of a sudden he's going to have a brand new comprehension of a lot of different things. Ultimately, he's going to understand himself differently. He's going to understand God differently. He's going to understand the afterlife differently. He's going to understand the role and the purpose of his life differently as well. Notice it's not just that he's going to get a new sight, but he's going to get a new direction as well. Notice verse, verse 14, and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. So it wasn't just that Paul was going to have a relationship with Jesus and to hear the very will and the revelation of God, but it was for a purpose. Verse 15, for you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. That ultimately Paul was to be a witness of what he had seen and what he had heard. And all of a sudden, Acts twenty two fifteen takes us all the way back full circle to Acts 1, 8. When Jesus, before he was ascended, said to his disciples, Hey, here is what your lives are to be. Here is what you're to do. I'm not going to bring about a kingdom immediately in which you're going to rule over men and women. That's not happening yet. It's going to happen in a future time. But, be, but for the here and the now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Not just in your immediate locality, but even a little bit further away where you're uncomfortable and ultimately even to the ends of the earth. This is what your role disciples are to be and what our role is to be no matter our vocation, no matter our calling, whether we're going to be a doctor, a stay-at-home mom, or a missionary, or a pastor, or a lawyer, it does not matter, or a teacher. No matter our vocation, the disciples and us are called to be witnesses, and it's exactly what happens to Paul here in Acts twenty-two fifteen or 16. It comes all the way full circle. In fact, it's not ironic at all that here he stands in Jerusalem making this proclamation when he realizes that the purpose of his life is to be an ambassador and a spokesperson for the Gentiles to the ends of the earth. The role and the call of God in Jesus in Acts 1, 8 comes full circle here in Acts 22 because Paul is going to be an embodiment of the gospel going to the nations, all right? Full circle here. Incredible change in Paul's life. Not just what he could see and understand, but also what he stood for. The sense of direction in his life, what he was called to be and what he was called to do. Ultimately, if you know Jesus Christ, that is what life is meant to be. I want to ask you this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, have you had that opportunity yet where you've encountered Jesus? If you think that you know Jesus Christ, if you think you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, do you know that there's been a time in your life where, hey, you met Jesus and then he changed everything? that he forgave you, that he changed your relationship with him, changed your understanding of sin and of grace and of life. If you know Jesus Christ, then you have a calling upon your life, no matter what vocation you will ever choose. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, then the, the opportunity you have this morning, even as you listen to Paul's story, is an understanding not just of what happened to Paul's life, but what can happen in yours as well. That you can know Jesus Christ because the very God of the universe who has created everything wants a relationship with you. And the reason why he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to come in human flesh is so that we could know and understand who God is by seeing him in the flesh. And though you and I do not have an opportunity to see and to know Jesus Christ in the flesh, his written word is a record of who he was and what he's accomplished and what he's offered to you and I. That we can have forgiveness of sins and be reconciled to God, not on the basis of anything that we have done, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us.
Paul will put it not in narrative form, but in objective truth form in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 10. And I've kind of taken pieces of this to show you that what Paul does of his own story in Acts 22 is the same thing that he does in Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 10. Notice he says of himself and his audience, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That ultimately, looking at the past of an encounter with Jesus Christ, that if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or before you did, then we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We were stuck in neutral. Our lives were going nowhere, and there was no sense of joy, sense of fullness, sense of design and significance, apart from what God can offer to us. So we chase and we run after thing, after thing, after thing, and yet nothing satisfies. Because what we've been created for, we've not yet entered into relationship with. But God, in being rich in mercy because of his great love, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I love Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved, but God, rich in mercy. We were dead and moving on our way, doing our thing, when God showed up took the initiative to get in front of us and say, hey, I love you. I've died for you and I've given my life for you. Would you know me? Would you accept that forgiveness? For those of us who have, for by grace, we've been saved. We've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Our sins have been wiped away. We've found forgiveness. We've found freedom. And then God begins to remake and reshape us to be what he originally intended us to be. It's not just that our lives are now have a, a, a debt and a guilt that's been wiped away, but all of a sudden God begins to restore and remake us and to change us. I want to challenge you guys, if you do know Jesus Christ this morning, this afternoon, this week, take 30 minutes, sit down with a piece of paper, and to write out your story. If you had three or four minutes with someone to communicate who God is and what God has done in your life through story, through your own narrative, could you communicate that? Because you have about three or four minutes sometimes with a person in terms of attention. Can you communicate your story? And if you had that opportunity, what would you communicate? What would you explain and communicate about who God is, what he's done, what he's rescued you from, how you met him, what he did in that moment that you met him, and then ultimately then also how he's going to change you and how he has changed you? How are you different today because of the relationship you have with Jesus Christ? The proof is in the pudding. What has God done in your life? What is the relationship you have with him? What is it that you're explaining that God can do to people? Ultimately, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, let me challenge you. Take 30 minutes this week, this afternoon, and write out your story. And then once you've written out your story, let me challenge you to begin to pray as you approach Easter weekend that you would have an opportunity to communicate and explain the hope that you have because of Easter this week with a classmate, with a coworker, with someone who may not know him. And if you don't know him this morning and you're here with us this morning, let me say this. This Easter, this week can be an opportunity for you to come into a relationship with him maybe for the first time. Good Friday that we will take off and we will celebrate did not look good on that Friday, right? When Jesus would be crucified for each one of us so that he could offer to each one of us his own life and the opportunity to have eternal life and to have a union and an identity and a relationship with him for the rest of life. Way better than any engagement and way better than any engagement story. And one of the things I love about testimony and stories is that ultimately our story becomes part of and an opportunity to share the larger story that exists, which is the story of God. We're going to wrap up this morning. We're going to end on a video that I want you guys to see that really starts off with someone's personal testimony and then begins to move to the larger story of what God has done. And as we jump into this, I want you guys to be thinking, even as you're watching it, going, hey, do I see the, the chance that I had before Christ, the chance that I had when I encountered Christ, and the chance that occurred after I knew Christ, even from the video? And as you're watching it, be thinking about how is it that you could creatively tell your story? This guy's going to take an opportunity through video to communicate his own story of ultimately what God has done in the story of God. 
how is it that you and your own creativity, your own vision could communicate your story? Maybe it's just verbal. Maybe it's through art. Maybe it's through a poem. Maybe it's through a conversation. I don't know what it may be, but begin to think, even as you watch this, how could you communicate your story of what God has done and ultimately a story that's not just yours, but it's the story of God? What you have done. We thank you for your gift of grace, your gift of love to us that has been offered to us, Lord. And I pray that you give us a greater sense of that this week. Father, we sing of the fact that your love has no sting. We sing of a day in which your name will be exalted over every other name. And yet that day is not yet today. And so, Father, it is no coincidence that your own son's story that would be shared would lead to a cross. It's no coincidence that even in Acts 22, Paul's story would lead to the thread of his own life. And Father, it is no coincidence that in this day and the shadows of Good Friday, a day in which we still are closer to Good Friday than we are to the Resurrection Sunday. It's no coincidence that our own story will lead to rejection and will lead to criticism. And Father, I pray that you'd give us courage to identify with you, to be unashamed of our relationship with you, and to be bold even as we approach Easter, because that day is dawning soon. Lord, help us to look toward that day. Help us to share in light of that hope, uh, and not in the light of the present. Not in light of the fact that our culture yet to recognize how great you are and that there is no greater love than yours. But allow us to be unashamed, allow us to be winsome, allow us to be clever, allow us to be shrewd, allow us to be gracious and gentle as we provide an explanation for the hope that we have as Easter approaches, Lord. Why don't you give us eyes to share with those that are in our life and for us, if we do not know you, Lord, allow us to consider that gift that you have accomplished on our behalf and maybe for the first time ever to enter into a relationship with you. Father, we love you and we thank you and we ask that you move in our lives in a powerful way as we approach Resurrection Sunday and the hope that we have in Easter, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.